0: This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook.
1: Hi, Marky Parky.
0: Hey, Mommy, Balami, Salami, Mom mom. Uh
1: Uh-huh. Did you have fun with the kids yesterday? Did you eat
0: out? Yeah, we had a great time. Ian drove us over to Val's house and then we picked up the kids and we all went over to Sauce uh, For what? The name of the restaurant is called Sauce S-A-U-C-E Oh, Sauce. Yeah, you know like the stuff you put on top of other stuff? Uh Uh-huh, Sauce. Yeah, we had a nice time. So I got your uh, Father's Day card today. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I'm just so tired
0: right now. So go lay down. Watch a little Jeopardy and pass out cold in the chair thing. Okay. uh, I'll do it sitting. I sleep better sitting. Right. Go watch and then go to
2: sleep. I love you. Love you too, Ma. Hello. Hello. What's happened?
0: I thought I would wish you a happy Father's Day on the show.
2: Well, thank you.
0: How was Venice Beach? It
2: was great. What
0: would you guys do?
2: We ate on top of uh, a building. It was a restaurant on top, overlooking the whole Venice area. Yeah. It was very nice Walked up and down the ocean front. It was overcast, but it got warm, so it was very, very nice.
0: Was it just you and Rachel? Yeah. Oh, okay. So what are you going to do the rest of the day?
2: I have no idea what Mom wants to do. I was coughing pretty hard this morning. I felt better now because she gave me a couple of those gummy bears.
0: What kind of gummy bears?
2: So, I forgot what they're called. What do they do? Oh, it's supposed to just relax you a little bit.
0: Well, what's in them?
2: Hold on a minute. What? Oh, CBD.
0: Oh, they're CBD? Ask her if they're THC also. No, they aren't. They're not? No. Oh, they're just pure CBD gummy bears?
2: Yes. And they help you? Yeah, they did this morning.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah. But so they came back in a couple hours, so my chest bothered me. Well, I'm not going
0: to keep you on the phone because I don't want you uh, uh, getting it. (laughs) Coughing? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. In your ear? Yeah, well, I'm not worried about my ear. I'm worried about your cough. My ear's fine.
2: I'm fine. Yeah, okay. Well, have a good
0: Father's Day. Well, thanks, Dad. It has been so far, and you have a good rest of your Father's Day, too. I will. Love you. Love you, too, Dad. Uh,
2: hello, Marky. Kim Jong-un here.
0: Trump is all over everything now. He tweets every day, many times per day. And now because I'm on Twitter a little bit, I happen to see what he's doing, because I'm not into politics at all, I don't get it. But I've been watching him the past couple days on these videos, and I'm convinced he's stupid. He literally is stupid. The leader of the free world is stupid. You think it's an act, or do you think he's genuinely... No, he's really stupid. There's no act, that's him. He's doing him as the president, it's not fake. I mean, he's working for the Russians, but... I think he will get a second term. Oh no, he's getting impeached. You think so? Oh yeah. He's building concentration camps for children already in his first term. He's going down. That guy's going down. I'm very confident in a happy, hopeful, reasonable
2: way that he's creating his own demise pretty securely. This a plot by the Freemasons and this is going exactly as some kind of plan or...
0: Oh no, no, this is a plan. This is a plan. And no matter what, even if he goes down tomorrow, yeah. they got what they needed out of him yesterday. So it doesn't
2: really matter. Good point, good point.
0: So did you hear who I spoke to uh, the other day? Who? Somebody who is legendary, female from the 80s, one of my favorite of all time, amazing... (laughs) Martha Davis. How'd you meet her? Through you. Whoa! Yeah? Another fine cha-ching hookup from Rich Reeves. Incredible. Yeah, Martha Davis, uh, the uh, front person, guitar player, singer, songwriter,
2: from the legendary 80s band, The Motels. Only the lonely, suddenly last summer. Right. Did I tell you who I'm meeting on September 11th? God, I am going to meet another gentleman from the 80s. A musician from the 80s? I'm gonna meet a very well-known musician from the 80s on September 11th.
0: Where Where? where are they?
2: They're playing at the Brit. They're playing at the Brit, they want you to hang out with them? Yeah. Boy George.
0: Shut up. Yeah. Culture Club? Yeah. Is he still doing the Culture Club? I
2: gotta bring him some. (laughs) Yeah. Culture Club's playing at the Brit. And my good friend Carl's playing keyboards. And he sent me a message a couple days ago. He said, we want to see you. So, uh, got a pass for you. Get down here on September 11th. Only one pass? That's how cheap these bitches are? I could probably get a few more.
0: You know, I could be a huge hero. If, in fact, (laughs) aren't you enough of a hero? By the way, this weekend, free concert, Santa Cruz, the motels, on the boardwalk, no charge. City great... of Santa Cruz is foot the bill, bringing the motels to you for free.
2: Yeah. Do you think a organic, healthy vegan who does drugs will live longer than a meat, dairy-eating rock star who does drugs? Maybe not longer, but maybe better. Maybe better.
0: Did you see on the, what's the website that shoots us that email every every day? One Green Planet. One Green Planet. Did you see the lead story on that today? Did you read it at all? The lead story today was something that... The lead story today was I'm not going to tell you to be a vegan. Yes, I did read that. I read it every day. That's well, then favorite. why am I telling you? You know why you don't remember it? Because you don't like that the guy is not saying be a vegan. That's why you didn't remember it. You know that's true. That's why you're smiling. What
2: does he call it? Reduce... Reducitarian? Reducitarian, that's it. Reducitarian. Yeah, I don't like it. Because? I don't think you should eat less meat. I think you should eat no meat. We wean babies off of the breast milk. Can't you wean people off of things instead
0: of trying to rip the band-aid off? Can't we lead them in a reasonable direction to make it easier for them and not be yeah. such a shocking thing yeah. for them that they're already reticent about yeah. doing and have a problem with?
2: So brainwashed.
0: Well, unless we give them all mushrooms and LSD and shock them out of their reality, we're gonna
2: have to wean them off of things. Yeah, I, even me. Yes. You know what really pissed me off today? What? God damn it! I went all the way down to Natural Grocers. Where's that? By Trader Joe's in Medford. Yeah. Because they have the Beyond Burgers for cheaper than anyone. Oh. Like five bucks. Oh. Completely sold out. There was a sign on the window due to the popularity of Beyond Burgers. Oh, we can't keep them in stock.
0: You should be thrilled to fucking death that people in Medford are eating Beyond Burgers. Are you kidding me? That is a victory. Not when I want them. Then you're an idiot for not calling first.
2: Anyway, yeah, it's a good thing.
0: That's a great thing! It's what you want
2: people to do and you're
0: complaining about it, you fucker! <laughs>
2: God you damn it! You vegan poser! You're a vegan hypocrite! I bet you those fuckers are still eating bacon on them, though. I bet you that they're still eating meat, that's... and they're eating my fucking vegan food. Well, that's part of the weaning
0: process, that... is I'm not eating two animals at once, I'm only you know eating what I hate? one!
2: I hated going to the co-op for the goddamn breakfast. There's one scoop of tofu left, And fucking Joe there, with his big plate of sausage, grabs that last scoop of tofu. You motherfucker! Put that back! That's mine! Yeah, but but if you waited
0: five minutes, wouldn't they have had fresh tofu out there for you? I asked,
2: and they said, that's it! Oh,
0: that's too bad. Bob Jackson Miner's on the show today. Look at all those harmonicas!
3: Yeah. This is my regular gig set. 44, I think, in there. What did you just say? I think I have 44 harmonicas in there. What did you say? Citizen 44. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, 44 citizen harmonicas in there. That's ridiculous that you have 44 of the Well, you know, it's a diatonic instrument. What does that mean? It means it has the notes that are in a key, like, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do. Right. Right, so there's the notes in that key. Piano is a chromatic instrument because it has all the notes in every key. Okay, so, so what was this called? These are diatonic okay. instruments. Okay, so each one is tuned to a key. We're not limited to playing only in that key with the instrument if we know how to bend the notes or overblow in some cases. It's not a talent that I have, but I've heard it well done. So we have a lot of ways to work with these, but they're in awesome tunings that, uh, like, I love this one. This is tuned to harmonic minor.
0: Sounded very French.
3: Yeah, it can be French. They use it in French, especially French Morocco. It's also a gypsy style. Uh, a lot of music that gets called gypsy music has this tonality. So it's a really cool. So tour. pretty. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And uh, I'm really grateful to Lee Oscar for designing that harmonica and. Who
0: gave you the name Harmonica Bob?
3: Well, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it came into my own mind as a result of a solution that the producer of this television series in El Paso, at this TV station, which was a Fox affiliate, and these were in the days before there was such a thing as Fox News, and so the afternoon was really dedicated to kids. And at that time, they asked me to be the regional on-air host for the Fox Kids Club. What year was this? That started in 1990. And you were living there? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I grew up in El Paso. Oh, okay. I'd lived away, worked in New York for several years in New Jersey, and uh, in my reckless youth, you know.
0: You had a reckless youth? Oh, God. Oh, my God, I can't <laughs> wait to hear this.
3: <laughs> yeah. And a few wrecks in that reckless youth, yeah. You mean vehicle? Oh, there was that. But uh, in general, it was just me crashing into my own ego. Wow, (laughs) fun! Yeah, all right. Okay. Did you go to college? Oh, sure. I went to the University of Texas at El Paso and um, studied music there. At first, I went for a couple of years before I had any idea that I actually could start doing what I really wanted to do. And so I was studying pre-med and failing miserably. I didn't think I had the qualifications to get into the music department. So I went into a department where I had no qualifications whatsoever and proved it. I'm talking about just completely blowing it with the basic stuff.
0: Why did you even try it?
3: Misguided perception of things that might please my father and such uh. as that, you know, real a lot of unconscious motivations that I didn't sort out for some time. But once I started to realize that really what I wanted to do was to play music. And so I started playing harmonica more. I had been playing since senior year in high school. And hooked up with a good musician from New York, just serendipitously, and started playing with Jerry Saccone, and then played in his band in New York and New Jersey. And you played harmonica in his band? I did. Okay. And and that was really all I did at the time. I hadn't started to learn to sing or become a musician, really. I couldn't understand what they were saying when they said, play a B-flat 11 here, please. To the other players, I knew the jargon, and I didn't. I was really quite a non-musician. But I was supported really well in that band, and... I feel like I owe a lot to Jerry Sicon. He had been the band leader for the Shangri-Las. Leader of the power. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he'd been doing that for three years at the point the band broke up and he had come to, actually he was on his way to Juarez, Mexico to get married with his fiancée, Eileen. And we met in the airport and hit it off. And I said, man, I can take you over there and show you where to do that. Because I grew up in that turf. First day we played something together in a Mexican restaurant and it was... Just amazing, little magical moment where uh, the whole place had a new experience for a brief moment. And it was great, you know, the cooks quit cooking and the dishwashers walked out and everybody wanted to see what was happening.
0: What year was this?
3: Oh, that would have been about, uh, I'm going to say 1968. And How old were you? uh, In 68, I was just turning 20. My birthday is uh, Thursday this week. Oh it is? April 26th.
0: Awesome, happy birthday almost.
3: Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Right. So you were born in 1948? 40, 1948, yeah. yeah, El Paso. What was going on in El Paso in 1948? Oh, the war had been winding down and there's an army fort there and my dad had come in the military. He
0: was in World War Two.
3: Yes. Did he go and do things? He, yes, as far as I know, but he would never talk about it like many of the people. In his generation, they, they got pretty close-lipped and close-hearted over imagine. those issues, yeah. So did, he wouldn't talk about it. And did I, he
0: ever talk about it?
3: A little bit, but not the, the stuff during the war, but some things after the war. He talked a little bit about it to me once. All of us in, in El Paso in, the, in those days had parents who had been involved in, in the military, all my buddies and I. And my grandfather had come west to find new work. And had settled in El Paso. He came from Alabama. He worked on ships and railroad cars and things like that. And he found work right away in El Paso at a body shop, working on automobiles. So he moved his family to El Paso, and my mother was a teenager and met my dad. And where they met in El Paso at the Fort Bliss swimming pool. I'm sure, it's named after a general Bliss. What a name, right? Yeah. In the heat of the West Texas desert. I loved growing up in El Paso. It was really good, but I'm glad to be from there. What was school like for you? You know, what I really liked about the school was the diversity of races in most of the schools I went to, at least the first schools. And that diversity of races was really part of me learning to get beyond the enculturated thoughts of my ancestors, that somehow white race was better than other races and such. In a community where everyone's really relying on everyone, it's easy to get rid of those illusions and realize that our neighbors are our neighbors.
0: So did you have a bit of bigotry and racism in the early parts yes, of your family? Yes,
3: sure I did, but it was benign in, in the sense of they were very well-meaning. and Like, for example, my grandmother, who was a most amazing woman, and when we would get on the bus, let's say, to go downtown or to come back from downtown out to where we lived, she would just spot the most interesting person on the bus and it was usually a woman and usually of a different racial group and she would sit us down next to a mexican woman or an african-american woman and strike up a conversation that invariably ended in a friendship that they continued to see each other and and hold affection for each other and wow she was very friendly she was extremely friendly but at one point I remember her saying that she didn't understand what all the trouble was about and why Dr. King was stirring so much up because she said, well, I'm from Alabama and we always treated our color people good. Okay, not understanding the racism in that entitled viewpoint that she didn't know she had. It's like we can't tell what color our eyes are unless we have a mirror or someone can tell us. So she had no idea. Now, had it been pointed out to her, she is the kind of person that would have said, well... Um, Let me take that in, I'll think about that. We all just changed over time. And that was said during the heat of Dr. King's movement. And there were parts in me that resisted his message. And then as I matured and started to realize that, how do I reconcile these things inside myself? I was in ROTC in high school at, at that stage in my freshman year. And a couple of weeks in my sophomore year, I was at that same school. Well, in that class, in that ROTC class, our commanding officers were black. Mm -hmm. And one in particular was, in my estimation, an absolutely superior human being. I had to reconcile this stuff inside of me, you see. These beliefs that if I was hanging out with the cowboys and doing those, you know, ride the horses and do those kinds of things that were available to us in my youth, Then there would be racial slurs and racial jokes and ha-ha-ha about other racial groups. And I was a kind of chameleon in my personality, and I could adopt that for a while. And then feel that there was something in me that wanted to fit in, and something in me that didn't actually think it was okay to do that. And then by the time Dr. King's movement was more firmly established, and I'd listen to him do the I Have a Dream speech, while he was on television with my grandparents and my parents in the room. And there was a a hush in the room. And finally, I think it was my grandpa said, well, sounds like he's telling true. And it's like, okay. Those who had ears to hear understood. And I was in the presence of that, and I was part of that because I started to be changed. Very noticeably so. And I'd already had to reconcile my perception of David Pepper, who was one of our officers. And on the basketball court, David Pepper was a god. There was nothing like David Pepper in our school district on the basketball Mm. court. He was just amazing. And I don't know what happened with this incredible mind in a culture that wouldn't allow it. I don't know. Did you ever look him up? I crossed trails with him one time about five years after we were out of high school and at that time he was a sky cap at the airport now what a mind like his will parlay that into well I don't know but I remember being completely aware of his intellectual prowess and fully understanding why he was the officer in our ROTC group and saying inside myself well it's not true about all of them these limiting beliefs I held and at certain point, I had to say, it's not true about anyone that anyone with the right kind of nurturing attitude and support will unfold their own natural gifts and their own natural genius, which is far beyond the capacity of our culture to comprehend.
0: You learned some stuff early on, pretty big stuff.
3: I'm really grateful. Yes, yeah. I did some pretty big stuff.
0: And you're lucky that your grandparents and, and your family
3: was open to change. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because a lot of them weren't.
3: Yeah. That's right.
0: And imagine how you may have turned out if that didn't happen.
3: I'm so grateful that those things did happen, and I really view them as if I'm standing on the shoulders of all of our culture's, let's say, racial maturity, where we start to become racially mature. And in that, we realize the power of diversity in a cohesive group. When you have a cohesive group and that kind of diversity, well, you'll have certain amount of conflict, and that's okay. If people are mature, then the conflict becomes part of the mill that produces the new outcomes mm-hmm. that are superior. But it doesn't have to be anything other than intellectual or uh, emotional. And genetically, we're related to the trees on this planet and the microbes on this planet. Right. You know, the Red Elders had it exactly right. All of life is our relative. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's...
0: I guess, as a species, we're just really young, maybe and immature and have not figured out
1: uh,
3: how valuable we are to each other. Yeah, Yeah, I really agree with that. And I know that in my own case, in myself, when I look at myself and realize the amount of compassion it takes inside of me for the stupid mistakes that I've made and the infringements against the lives of other beings, you know, whether that's using pesticides or whatever it is, These are gross infringements against the nature of life itself. And in my case, it involved BB guns and murdering helpless animals and things like that. Is that what you did when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, in, in middle school, that was like sport. And then one day I was in a fantasy of Proud Hunter and showed a cache of probably seven little harmless creatures that I killed with that BB gun. And I showed my father like thinking he's going to say good shooting or something, right? And he, he just was very quiet for a minute. And he said, thank you for showing me this. And I want you to understand something. You have to answer this question. Are you going to eat any of these creatures? And I said, no. He said, can you make another one? No. Can you fix these? No. You have absolutely no right to take their lives from them. And if you ever do it again, you will eat it.
0: <laughs> wow, that is fucking brilliant. Yeah, it was you brilliant. will eat it. Yes. I bet you never did it again.
3: Uh, not on purpose. I did a couple of instinctive shots that were instantly fatal to the creature. And it was. I was just out target practicing. And just reacted instinctively and realized how deadly that can be. And wept and said, no more, no more.
0: So you grieved your
3: whole thing? Oh, I grieved the whole thing. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I grieved it. So this is what I'm saying. It takes compassion for me to forgive myself of those things, not just at that younger age, but certainly at older ages, where I found myself deceitful with somebody in order to gain a few dollars in a transaction and things like that, or a lot of dollars. But those things weigh heavy. And once I started to reach a different bandwidth in my own understanding of self and the universe... I began to perceive the unity that I'd heard about before, but once I started perceiving the unity between myself and plants and myself and animals and myself and insects, certainly myself and other people, once I started to perceive that we are one life, one consciousness with many expressions that individuates, that's the nature of ego is to create the individuation awesome in its function in that way. Once I started to perceive that, then my values changed. What did it take? Uh, Just life in general and a decision inside myself to understand more. Life in general was always teaching me to wake up, and it still is. Like Every lesson, I think, comes as a part of the conspiracy for our awakening. Like in the sense, for example, of when I'm working with artists in production or in training and working with any type of performance artist, which I usually work with singers and actors, mostly singers, and some instrumentalists and composers. So when I'm working with artists, the idea that I work with is how to assist them and myself in getting over the enculturations that hide our natural gifts from us and to be able to let those out. Well, in the process of that, we see that confidence is a natural byproduct of experience and achievement and that all people gain confidence through experience and achievement that positive self-talk is useful to keep us in the game but only staying in the game will produce this experience in our life where the successes and the failures hold absolutely equal value there are certain things you can only learn from the failure and certain things you can only learn from the successes so we don't have to seek failure it's just stacked into the deal on, on the planet right Confidence or courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do the thing anyway, even though you're afraid. Uh, Confidence is like that. And so there are outcomes we intended and outcomes we did not intend. But all taken equally, they are of equal value in the nutrition system that awakens us into a more mature state. So what it's taking for me is an awareness. And I say taking because this is going on for decades now where my practice is to love what is as it is and to play with what is as it is. And when I get triggered and knocked out of balance, how quickly can I recover? How quickly can I give up my ego stance and say, being right is not important. Being in balance and opening to a state of love where that energy flows through my heart instead of having it clamped down Because my solar plexus, my willpower is so open, and I am right, and da-da-da, that's out of balance. And man, is it part of my personal script to go out of balance.
0: Well, I've heard the saying, is it better to be right or to be kind?
3: Yeah, thank you. And I just really heard that recently. Yeah.
0: And uh, unless you're being kind, that's always right. That can never be incorrect.
3: Yeah. But with a sense of kindness, we remain open to the possibility that we may have a skewed distorted viewpoint of the circumstance and that we really could be wrong in those terms. But I think that in the really awakened state, what we do is we move beyond right and wrong and we come to a place where those dichotomies in the thinking get somewhat weeded out. Because if we're doing what's kind, it's a different bandwidth than right and wrong. (laughs) It's just a different thing. See, I think that the ego is a kind of entity. It has an identity, and it could be uh, parlaying whatever our skills and resources might be into this image to the world. We're this thing, Okay, but that thing is a mask, and that right. thing is an invention. And I know that in my own case, you know, the whole stint that I did as Harmonica Bob and all that, and I like that. And it was fun to play that and to put that role on and go do what that guy does. And I very much enjoyed it. It's the same like when I do Lincoln, and put on Lincoln's costume, everything in my experience changes while I'm in costume with that character. People walk right up and call the actor Mr. President, and they want to play a role, and it's remarkable what happens with that, and I'm fascinated by that and deeply grateful that I get to portray Lincoln at least once a year. Uh, Where do you do that? Well, here in Ashland, I do it once a year at the 4th of July Parade, in the Parade is Lincoln, but then at the bandshell with the amazing Ashland City Band, Don Bigler conducting. Wow! And this was Don Bigler's idea the first year I was going to do the Gettysburg Address. At the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, I was to do the Gettysburg Address in the Lithia Bandshell after the Parade. And Don Bigler saw me on the billing and called and said, Hey, instead of you going on before us, I have an idea I'd like to work out with you. And he explained his idea about where the drum roll goes and the intensity of the middle of the composition. Jerry Billick's Civil War Anthology, it's a great composition. He said, I would like to extend this drum roll here for the right amount of time. And then on a certain cue, bring the music back in to move forward with you in the mm. speed. And so we've already done it five years now. And each time it gets better. He has ears the size of Texas. Great conductor. Really hears what's going on. And he's feeling the speech in such a way that at the very right spot, he brings the band back in and moves the music we forward. Well, are
0: another instrument in his arsenal.
3: Yeah. That's right, part of the texture that he wanted to sculpt. And then what happens between us? And by the us, I mean not just Don Bigler and the Ashland City Band. And that's 70 musicians behind me. Percussion and brass and strong woodwinds like clarinets and such and bass clarinets. Amazing sound. So the us includes the audience. Their energy and their focus and what Bigler and the Ashland City Band are doing and the icon of Lincoln itself. And then what I do as an actor, it all comes together that we co-create something as a community that is unique in the known universe. It blows my mind every single time. I'm carried away by it. It is an altered state of consciousness that I cherish deeply, and we can only create it with a community. It isn't something that Don Bigler and I could do, even with all those 70 musicians. Maybe something like it in a recording session, but... What happens with that live audience is uh, is really profound to me, and I'm really grateful that I've had that ride five times so far. <laughs> is there a plan to do it again this year? Yeah. The city two years ago asked me to make it a yearly tradition, and, and Bigler agreed, and I agree. I portray Lincoln in other situations. and I've ha- seen you in the car. Yeah.
0: It's pretty wild. You it's, look pretty good. <laughs>
3: yeah, thank you. I, I worked on it. I had very good help from... Wigmaster Virginia Carol Hudson, and from costume designer, Barbara. Uh, she at the time was Barbara Rains, and I'm not sure of her last name now, but a brilliant costumer. And so... Did she work for Shakespeare? She at the time was working with the Camelot Theater. And now I think she has another job altogether in a different field at the university. Oh. Yeah. Huh. But she's a brilliant person. Whatever she does is going to go well. So. Yeah, I had really good help putting it together, and my partner Peggy and I worked on it. How do we design it? Who do we call in to pull this off? And uh, who came up with the idea? Well, originally Tim Kelly, who was doing a series of great speeches as part of the Ollie program mm-hmm. for SOU. So yeah, yeah, he asked me to read Lincoln's speeches, and he also had other actors that were all friends of mine doing the roles of Mahatma Gandhi and Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King. So it was a really good series. And I think that's all. There may be others, but that's who I remember. At the um, onset of this, I said, sure, I'll do that. And he brought me the speeches and I started reading the speeches. And then I got to the house divided speech and I couldn't understand who he was talking about. Lincoln was talking in a metaphor about three architects that swear they haven't colluded with each other or or been doing something together. But yet each one keeps delivering exactly the right piece to build this architecture, and he used the metaphor of a barn. And these pieces coming in, how can this fit so exactly if that person hasn't conferred with that other person? And he named names, Roger, James, and Franklin, And I'm going, who the heck is he talking about? And he went on in that speech to say, this piece of architecture is coming together so precisely that with one more Supreme Court decision, slavery will be legal throughout the North as well as the South. And my God, I realized he was right. And I said, who are these guys? So I went into studying history for the next three days to find out who's Franklin, who's Roger, and James. And it was then the sitting president, James Buchanan, the chief justice, Roger Taney. The previous president to James Buchanan was Franklin Pierce. Those three guys all lived in the same boarding house in uh, Washington, D.C. They lived in the same boarding house for years, and they really were conspiring to make slavery legal throughout all parts of the United States. Uh. And when I got that's what was going on, two presidents and a chief justice of the Supreme Court who himself said all black people are so inferior to any white person that no white person has any duty to respect the rights of a black person. That's the Supreme Court justice in around 1861 said that they were all slave owners and they were in the slavery business. That's a marvelously profitable dark enterprise. It's a very, very evil scheme and enormously profitable for the evildoers who control it. And that involves banks in New York City and all kinds of things. The North was absolutely culpable in the slave trade. It was never just the South, not Mm. ever, not not one bit of it. It was always the north and the south. All the shipping that was carrying the cotton and carrying the rum and carrying the slaves back from Africa. All that stuff was coming out of Boston. So, no, it's never been what we were taught in school. Well, that's the problem with school. You know, there's there's a marvelous book, and it's called Dumbing Us Down, and I've forgotten the name of the author. But I found it rather informative about how the school system was started by a particular Austrian guy whose stated intention, and this was a European system in Austria and Germany, his intention was to make better citizens of the students. The school system design was to make better citizens of the students. In other words, more compliant to authority, more ready to work in a workforce designed by someone else.
0: Slave mentality.
3: It is a slave mentality, and the school system was, from the beginning, designed to maintain it. So is our economic system.
0: I was told recently that our school system was based on a principle that came through the military. Mm. So that's not true.
3: No, that really could be true. He could have been a military person. I don't know all of the details. But we know that these principles are at play. And many of the principles in the military trainings are similar. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. That makes sense in a certain paradigm. But if you understand more about how the brain works and how people learn, and what you do is not be concerned with what you're telling them but be concerned with what they're doing right now and you have information for them to engage with then training can happen and training is a very powerful thing and can be used to liberate the person instead of entrap them
0: Oh, of course i it's at the top of my list we need
3: proper training yeah we need proper training we really do yeah
0: forget education if Uh. you just train us properly to know what this is and how to leverage it, yes. then you can let people go. You don't need laws, you don't need government, you don't need anything. You know, People can do whatever they want because yeah. you can trust them because you train them properly.
3: There you go, there you go.
0: It's really simple.
3: I believe it, I truly believe it. And I think it may take some time for people to transition into it, but a lot of people can, under the right conditions, can move into that state of consciousness right now. See, under stress, we tend to revert to habit. And if the right kinds of stress are present and our habit cannot work, then we'll open up for new resources and new ideas and new thoughts. And I personally think that there is a large population on the earth right now ready to snap into a broader bandwidth. I feel it in myself in these last 10 years. I see it in many of my friends. We're up-leveling our bandwidth to be more inclusive of the total life and less isolated with the fear triggers and the fear responses that the oligarchs in our culture use to keep us manageable. To oppose that system is a being a part of it. And to transcend that system means I am not a part of it. And we collectively choose a different experience. Right. The people do have the power. The people always always have had. The
0: power. Never never did not have okay. the power. That's right. They were just confused into
3: thinking they didn't. That's right. And manipulated into thinking that was a solution through some government. Right. The solution can't come through the government. We need a revolution every twenty years to keep it working. I think we live in an age though where the revolution must not include any violence from the ones that are waking up. Because once we enter that realm, They've already won. There's no way to out-violence them. But on the other hand, to out-love them is entirely doable. We see the power of that in one person like Mahatma Gandhi or one person like Dr. King, where one person holding that resonance attracts others who are capable of holding that resonance. Right. I also think that in our case with Dr. King in that era, was it Dr. King or Malcolm X that did the most for civil rights? Well, it's hard to say. You know, both of those things came up at once, the, the model of uh, loving resistance from Dr. King, the model of the hell with it from Malcolm X, and all of those amazing minds. But then what happened to us in the middle, as we're making our transition from unconsciously, at least somewhat tainted with bigotry, white guys that I was with and right. Made, over to the side of where we have chosen to be free from that kind of bigotry, and we are at least consciously working on it, understanding that we are a product of the colonized mind, and at least consciously working on it. Now, in the presence of that consciously working on it, we get the experience of working with black people we hold in high esteem. It's pretty easy to erode those nonsense values, in the presence of new experience. But we have to be open enough to get into the experience. How many times I've trusted myself on stage with a black artist and been deeply grateful in my soul that we were out there together. It's like, no, man, we can co-create something together we can't even think of alone.
0: (laughs) Well, well, you just said everything. You know, the whole thing of two heads are better than one. Can you imagine what this world even looked like if we were inclusive in the creation of our experience. Holy moly. We need everybody. We're not put here alone. We were put here together for a reason, is to work this shit out.
3: I totally agree with it. And I understand that it is the nature of the ego to want to maintain its identity and its job. So the ego will buy into the fears that the oligarchs and the media use to trigger our amygdala inside our brain for our fight or flight response. That fight-or-flight response is very powerful, and it can do three things really, really well. It can make you run, it can make you fight, or it can make you hide. Now, there are only some scenarios that any of those are useful. When we walk in front of an audience, they're not at all useful, but the trigger is still there. When we go into a conversation with somebody who holds different viewpoints on any topic that trigger is still there and can get triggered that somehow I have to defend myself. Sure. I've been a person arguing and in anger over an ideology that I hold as opposed to the ideology of someone else. So I went through my phase of oppositional politics. I'm grateful that I went through it, but I've graduated from oppositional politics. I realize now that on the other side of those lines, those protest lines, there are the people dressed in the fascist uniforms, and they're us. Every single person there is somebody's son or daughter, and like every other little kid, we all just want to be loved. And every one of them over there is glad to have a job, glad to have someplace where they feel like they're doing something good in the world. And they're believing propaganda about us and our side that simply isn't real. And we were believing things about them. And sometimes they would send antagonists, uh, provocateurs into our side to throw rocks at them and stuff to start all these things. So how do we maintain this sense of balance, this sense of affection, this sense of awareness that I am you, brother, even though you have that. Uniform and I have this one.
0: Tolstoy used to go up to the Russian soldiers and he would say Do you believe in God? And they'd say yes He'd say do you believe in the Ten Commandments? They'd say yes, he goes who are you gonna kill? It's against God's law to kill and they would lay down their arms because they were being shown the truth Our children are not being shown what the amygdala is that's, that's right how it was leveraged early in right. our development right. for a protection mechanism right. and that we should at some point evolved beyond that because it's just not a necessary...
3: It's a useful tool under certain circumstances, but but none of them are social.
0: I got a dog chasing me. Am I gonna be able to stop this dog from taking a bite out of my leg? Yes, that's right. Very limited usage.
3: It's very useful under those conditions. And
0: that's fine, but as an evolved human being, we're rarely put in these positions unless we're attacking each other. Thank you. And or we're being attacked from a source that, you know, whatever it is. But again, They're not being taught that this little almond-shaped piece of shit in our head is very limited in what you should be using it for, and you should avoid using it at all costs unless it's an emergency. And to teach them how to think out of that
3: thing. Yeah, right.
0: But I don't think that's happening.
3: No, no, because the school system is not designed to awaken the students. Now, the students can use the system to awaken anyway, because any individual can take their circumstance and say, everything I'm experiencing is a product of my own consciousness. And what we experience nationally and globally is a product of our collective consciousness. Yeah, but
0: the 13-year-old doesn't know what that means. It depends
3: on the 13-year-old. They're not already ready to know rare. it. It's pretty rare. Sure, it's rare. But the teacher needs to know it. And the teacher is capable of knowing it. And if the teacher knows that, it can be informed through experience, not through data, like an adult talking to an adult, but through experience where the kids get to see how that's true. And there are many teachers that understand quantum teaching and how to awaken those aspects in a kid's brain while they're having a good time. And the qualities in the brain, the the higher bandwidth gets opened up.
0: Where is this happening? Please tell me. Well happening in these schools here in no Ashland.
3: no in fact it doesn't typically happen in a school system unless some of the students i think start to uh, engage it i first learned school. it from a woman named sarah singer nuri and was shown these as training tools for when we're doing seminars and such and first by her brother blair singer a very great trainer these folks really really get you to pop you can feel your new abilities Right, while they're working with you, and definitely from then on. So these are capacities inside the brain, and they can be quickened. And in Sarah singer Noree's book, Quantum Teaching, I picked up a lot of it. And when she was in the seminar where I was studying with her, she told about what happened in school, and how when she was like 13, I think, or 14, something like that, she was failing in school, just hated going to school, hated being there. And her brother brought her information about a training somewhere in California called quantum learning and quantum teaching. So how to do quantum learning and quantum teaching. So she said, well, okay, he sent her to the school. And when she came back, she had the skill. And she was able to sit and listen to any teacher and how they did it and play games in her mind and learn it all and be way ahead of everything that was going on. Tess just became an opportunity to demonstrate to herself that she had acquired this information and that's how she handled it It was all a game she started playing games in school with her own mind and she became very proficient at it and her friends were saying wow what happened to you last year you never made above c what's going on every, every you're just always scoring high she said well, i'll show you how to do it so she'd show her friends how to do it and they all started scoring like wow. that and then the teachers came to her and said show us what you're doing and so she taught the teachers now is it a national movement? No, it's actually quite contrary to what the old Where books. is it? I'm not sure of where it is. I learned it as an adult and use it in training. But Sarah Singer's book called Quantum Teaching is available at Amazon.com. Okay. Okay. You know. okay. And you can just look for quantum teaching, quantum learning, those ideas, and you'll find practitioners and people that are out there doing it. Now, one cool thing is that what we focus on expands so at first we don't know about a topic so we didn't know we didn't know that but then once we know we didn't know that and where can I get that and then we start looking into it then that river of information begins to get broader broader and more detailed at the same time so we dive in and what we focus on expands and it expands inside of our own self as well as in our experience with the world our mind opens up to a different bandwidth we hear differently we see differently we begin to notice in a very different way.
0: Ah, that's the awareness. Yes.
3: And it's organic. It isn't achievable with the left brain linear mind at all. It's helpful. That's a good servant in the process. But if that thing starts to try to run the process, it's the thing we're trying to overcome in the process. So the left brain linear mind isn't where this bandwidth is available. That's like, you know, AM radio. What we want to tune into is a much broader bandwidth. And you can't be listening to 1640 FM and 920 AM at the same device. So when we tune up to a higher bandwidth, a whole lot of stuff that exists in that old bandwidth, gone. It's not useful anymore. And since we're actually drawing our consciousness from this amazing quantum field, as one way, a model of understanding it that we've been picking up from science and such, is if this... Quantum theories and these string theories are in any way correct and they appear to be there's a lot of evidence that they are Then if nothing that appears solid is solid now We've known this since before quantum theory was in like even getting in with electron microscopes and down into the molecular and subatomic levels then There's enormous space between everything so in any one atom the distance between the electrons and the nucleus and the proton all of that. Uh, there are huge distances when measured at that scale. And we can see them in our solar system, something that's very similar to that kind of a atomic. Super expansive. Yeah, super expansive. Yeah. And yet we get to experience it in this dimension as if it's all solid. But it isn't. And we've been hearing that for thousands of years yeah. from the Buddhists and the Hindu philosophers that were saying no it's all maya all of this is actually an illusion yeah, maya, yeah. <laughs> you know and uh, now science is coming to the place with oh my god it looks like some kind of a virtual reality that in fact it's mathematical and very quite possibly we are in a simulation right.
2: so you right. know it's like, like a hologram it's
3: like a hologram yeah. so okay now if that's true then why what's going on Well, I really think that what it is, is a a way for us to awaken to who we really are, which is far larger than our culture can comprehend. Oh yeah, this is pretty pedestrian, two-dimensional shit right here, man.
0: And I know that, I know that we are just scratching barely the surface of an experience, and it's like the experience is waiting for us.
3: Yeah to see more. To see more.
0: This is why the psychotropic movement? Yes. Has brought us closer to a different reality? Yes. This is not it?
3: Yes, that's right. The ability to expand into those higher bandwidths and broader bandwidths.
0: I was reading The Doors of Perception by Huxley. Thank you. He wrote while he was high on mescaline. Yes, right. And he wrote something about education in there that I just happened to read at the right time that talked to us about how our whole education is based on a verbal delivery. Yes. And that is problematic. Yes, it is. Because all this language and all these words Mm -hmm. are getting in the way of the true experience, which is quite silent. Yeah, thank you. And he articulated that within two paragraphs. That's beautiful. Which I started sharing with everybody. Not everybody's read that book. No not everybody knows about huxley not everybody knows that he wrote a book called island that writes a utopic story of an island where they know how to educate children and they're preparing children for living a real life
3: thank you i'm part of that not everybody love to read that book so thank you so much for mentioning it
0: well have you read anything from huxley yes
3: but long ago i had a really good teacher in high school he didn't stay with us long as a teacher because he was so different He told us we were all a bunch of ignorant pseudo-sophisticates and that the only one in the entire class with any sense at all was Kay Upton. Kay Upton was this very elegant beatnik kind of girl that sat in the back of the room all the time with her hair real straight and a stuffed bird on her shoulder. She was so eccentric that she was just not having much to do with the rest of us because she understood where we were and we didn't understand where she was until he said that. He made me think. He said, we were pretending that we were expressing our individualism and we were all dressing alike and we were thinking alike and talking alike and that we were just ignorant fools and that we're all just on a production line program. We're going to go from this school into college, straight into college without a thought. Without a thought. Without a thought. He said if you had any sense at all you would not do that if you had any sense at all you would spend at least a year and probably two after high school hitchhiking around europe and find out how the rest of this world is because you don't have a single clue yet yeah what class was that this was an english class when i was a junior in high school and it was really like cold water in the face and it made me think that one magic moment, right? Yes, but he did it every day. My whole time with him was a magic moment. It went on for, I don't know, maybe two months. But he brought us all to Huxley. I paid my son
0: $5 <clears throat> to lay on my bed with headphones and listen to The Power of Now. Wow. When he was done, and I sat here for the three hours with him while he did it, and afterwards I said, Well, he goes... Yeah, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Now he may have forgot that he got it 10 minutes later, but he got it in the moment. Yeah, that's right. And there's something about the auditory experience. I don't know if you know this, but I have figured out for myself, I listened to The Power of Now 15 years ago. Yeah. I laid on the couch with some headphones and all of a sudden I had this ghostly experience happening. There were things flying around and I got one specific thing out of it that I've done with people that I'm going to do with you right now that even people that read or listened to it don't recall this and I don't know how you could not recall this. I want you to think about your right hand. When you feel something in your right hand, raise your left hand. Think about your left foot. When you feel something in your left foot, raise your right hand. What did you just do? Effortlessly you moved your energy at will anywhere you wanted to. Mm -hmm. We are not instructed on any of this stuff. No one shows us anything about how unbelievably powerful we are, which is how we can hurt each other without doing anything. Just by a thought, just by your thought, you could activate energy in the exact place that you said that you wanted energy to be. So in the middle school, I went to the leadership class because they allowed me to kind of do whatever I wanted to in school. I had about 30, 40 kids in the class, and I did the same thing that you just did, of course, that nobody would ever show them in a million years. When I was done, there were 10 boys in the back of the class at a round table trying to move a piece of popcorn in the middle of the table. If we just show them a little bit, we can learn a lot, but we're not showing them anything, so they don't know
3: anything. Big deal is, to me, that we need to give ourselves permission to show ourselves. And then once we have an awareness of what it is, if we call into what can be used in a lot of different models, one of the models for this is calling into our own high self, because there's a large bandwidth and a large intelligence that we're connected to that we're not generally working with. But if we're able to work with that, then we really do get amazing leverage. So if we call to that higher self, that higher bandwidth, with our questions about how to share this, then we're brought into opportunities where we get to share it. That's how I got to share it. Yeah, exactly. Nobody tried
0: to stop me either. No,
3: because you were ready. But this is the difference, you see. In our enculturated mind, we think somebody else ought to be doing it. But when we have an awareness that we understand it, we realize it's ours to do. Right. And when it's ours to do, when we know what's ours to do, and then we have the courage to do it, we get a big cookie.
0: Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. A big cookie. A big cookie. Watching those 10 boys in the back, doing that to a piece of popcorn? Yeah. Showed me that anybody can leverage what I just said and take that in any direction they want.
3: Yeah. But it requires someone to actually show you. It does. And sometimes for us to be shown and to be seeing what we're shown, we have to have a desire for it. But here's a cool thing about that desire part. It's already in the heart and it's always calling us forward. I think we all have our own natural gifts, whatever they might be, and that our natural gifts compel us to engage in certain ways. In other words, a person wants to learn to sing. They feel it inside of them, or they want to improve their singing. Right. Maybe they're already singing, but their voice is getting worn out after an hour of practice, right. or something like that. So they feel this desire to express that, But then going on inside their head, they have these messages that say, oh, you can never sing or blah, blah, all these, you know, you can't carry a tune, etc. Stuff they've heard, but now they're saying it to themselves and using it to scare themselves, to hold themselves back. There is an automatic pressure going in two directions. We've got the heart that wants us to expand and come out. We have the conditioned mind that wants us to keep everything the same, so we're only dealing with the known. The conditioned mind is very happy in the known. That's the ego. That's its turf. So it wants you to stay there. It doesn't want you to expand right. into the unknown. Well, then it loses power. It, it loses want to lose power. Its power. That's right. I think that ultimately what will happen with the ego is that it's got a nature, a higher aspect, a higher aspect itself. That it has a nature that will allow us to still have individuation or a sense of The experience when we hit really high bandwidths, breathing and and whirling dervish dancing, you know, meditation, lots of ways to get there. But once we're in that bandwidth where we have this altered state and we're experiencing other intelligences and a communion with a much broader community that we're not normally aware of, those resources are there and they're there with us all the time. So that when we're back into more of the bandwidth of the enculturated mind, we're still able to call on that. And we can bring that into play if we're looking for, uh, let's say, a most benevolent outcome, a, a highest good outcome instead of an egocentric personal gain outcome. Highest good always works with mutual benefit.
0: Well, is that what religion is supposed to represent?
3: Oh, sure, it's supposed to. But boy, talk about a way for greed power to get control of things. Religion can be a real head trip. And it can be good, too. It depends on, you know, who's dealing. But ultimately, we have, and I think it was Ken Keys where we first learned this back in the 70s, we have three basic Addictions, there are sensation, security, and power. And with religious leaders and political leaders, there's a huge temptation to be involved in that. And in fact, some of the political leaders themselves are the successful criminals that have gotten into this position
0: they're the ones I want to give the psychotropics to so they can see that what they're doing is is small potatoes man it means nothing yeah it's little nothings it's going to come to fruition because it's almost an unavoidable collision that we're having
3: I believe it is because what's happening is the people are waking up and not everyone but the cool thing is it doesn't require anyone to make any kind of major cultural change it never has it's always been just a few people and then what happens is that few start to ignite this kind of consciousness and do these practices where they're raising their bandwidth and feeling greater unity, feeling a greater flow of love and a sense of connection, and feeling that there is, in fact, a way to love whatever is happening. Right. No matter what. No matter what. And once we're in that state, everything becomes the school du jour that we need to successfully pass through. And in that, our consciousness is honed, sharpened, quickened, and expanded. And I believe that as it quickens, it quickens into something that is unrecognizable by the ego at first. And I love this model of the caterpillar. I think I got it from uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard first. The caterpillar is voraciously consuming its environment. Like us. Yeah, and that's its nature, that's what it does. It voraciously destroys and consumes its environment until it finally hits a place where it is triggered into the cocoon. And it forms a cocoon for itself and goes into stasis. While it's in stasis, some of these cells, they're called imagineal cells, these imagineal cells that have always been in the body of the caterpillar and somewhat dormant, now in this stasis, they become very active. And they take all the raw materials from that thing that was a caterpillar and they turn it into a mush and they reorganize them in a way that puts all the right stuff in the right place and it's already encoded into the being. And then it emerges from that cocoon as a butterfly. And the caterpillar, would he recognize the butterfly? No. While he's in the caterpillar state? No. It's like it doesn't exist. It's another universe. Yeah. And I think we're going through something Mm. like that. And I don't think that all of the humans will make this transition. I think that a lot of the humans are too committed to self-greed that the slap upside the head that will come with the great correction is not going to be enough to make them move in an upward spiral. They haven't hit bottom enough yet. But that others have experienced bottom, have made choices, and are moving in the upward spiral by choice, by practice, by commitment. That currents on the planet will be a catapult for that consciousness. And I don't think it takes anything like everyone. I think it takes the ones that are here to do it. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, And so that's our task, is to recognize if we're one who will be committed to the awakening, and we commit ourselves to it. And that means we're willing to let our egos mature. Well,
0: that guy right there, Huxley, said it takes 10% of the human population... To be passionate about something for the rest to just cave in there it is that's a pretty small percentage of humanity to make a decision
3: that the rest will agree with i totally agree and i think that that 10 percent is already on the planet and that we are going through the experiences that are producing our awakening and we already know it's happening as we know it's happening and we commit more fully to it that's the game. That's yeah. the whole game. Oppositional politics has no part of that. No, and that's all no. just silly stuff. Yeah, you know,
0: Really, yeah. in the scheme of things. Right. It's
3: children's play. It is, it's child's play, that's yeah. right. And to get down to the real truth of what it is to love profoundly and to commit totally to the highest good in ourselves and others. Everyone wins that way yeah. because we're all only one life. And for us, I think functionally, it's just a reminder to stay on the game of waking up every single day. For me, that involves a meditation practice, it involves a breathing practice, it involves a toning practice. I notice that as I tone and just feel the tone in my body, um, and begin to notice that tone and feel that tone in my body, that with a pitch change, I can vibrate low in my torso and feel the sound either centered there or reflected there. And gradually work the tone up the spine, all the way up, and all the way back down again. And massaging the spine with tone alters my state.
0: Can you show us how to do that?
3: Sure. You just take a breath, and you breathe whenever you want to, and you make a tone. And I like these hummed tones, like mm, an M, hummed, because the air is coming through the nose, the mouth is closed. It's a very quiet thing. And you allow yourself to go down to the very bottom of your vocal range. Most people shy away when they hit the bottom. You want to relax into the bottom and embrace the bottom. These are not notes you could sing loud for someone else. These are notes you can vibrate and resonate for yourself. And you feel those. I'll do the low end first. Now I'm going to start a little higher than the low end so I can slide into the low end and let go as the ego wants me to try to make a good sound. Because the try to make a good sound is the opposite of what we're doing. There's no room for sounding good. There's only room for feeling and noticing what is. This is a very low range here. It's far lower than my actual vocal range for talking or singing. So this is deep inside the voice. It won't go loud, but it goes good this way. And in that, I can feel my whole torso vibrating. Maybe five minutes of that tone alone. And gradually... Higher. usually three or four breaths, and a tone on one spot is a great way to get going. And so now you can hear I'm in my normal vocal range. And now I'm feeling this more around my throat, just a little lower is in the chest part. So you can feel where it is. And as you go higher, Mm -hmm. now we're in head tones, what we call head tones. Um, Right around here, I'm feeling it vibrate in my forehead and in the crown of my skull. So you just explore. If you did about five minutes of toning, then the ideal thing is to be silent for about five minutes because it's not just the doing that brings the information in. And I highly recommend anyone that wants to get a handle on this to read Jonathan Goldman's work or listen to his recordings. Jonathan Goldman is very smart about these things, and he's got recordings and such available online. So these tones... They'll vibrate the body. They do vibrate the organs, including the brain and the other organs in the head. And when we use the tones, we use the tones for about five minutes. We can do a full range in that five minutes, or we could stay somewhere in any one of the ranges. And then we go silent for about five minutes. And in that silence, that's when the data really is integrated by that organic, nonlinear part of the brain. Ultimately, we start to move into a state of full-brain cognition while we're doing any of these sounds or making music. And when we hit full-brain cognition, the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere, they're just opened all up, and every part of the brain is communicating with every other part of the brain. It isn't like when we're just in the left brain for math or, or language, or just in the right brain for release and organic flow, but it's balanced and it's useful. It's functional. It's easy to experience the balance. Notice the air coming in at the nostrils, going out through the nostrils. And you notice your weight in the chair. You notice your, your feet and your shoes. You just notice your physical sensations and the things you hear in the room and outside. And that puts you right into the present moment. And all you do is practice the keen awareness before you go into your next thing. So it's Five, five, and five, really. You know, five minutes of tone, five minutes of silence, five minutes of have a good time. Yeah. So that's one easy practice anybody can do. What happens with these types of practice is that your bandwidth gets expanded. It's not something you have to achieve with your left brain. All you have to do is get out of the way long enough to spend five minutes doing this, and five minutes doing that, and five more doing whatever.
0: Speaking of the toning. Yeah, man. Let's go back to the fact that you are one... You're a singing coach, yeah, and we didn't really touch on the fact that you do those things, and where in your life did that happen?
3: When I was a little kid, I always sang when I was four and five years old and three years old, you know? I can remember that guy sitting there with oatmeal and the spoon humming, you know? It's like, okay, I had that musical part active in me all of my childhood. And I sang in the boys' choir when I was in seventh grade, but by the time I was in eighth grade and going into high school and all of that. Well, I was much more concerned with the girls than with uh, the music. And it was all about doing what's cool. And so I had peer pressure and I easily misled myself about a lot of things. I was playing trumpet in the maybe the fifth or sixth grade, but I quit that because guitars were cool and I didn't have one and trumpets weren't cool, so I quit music. Didn't get into music again until I was a senior in high school. But when I was about 10 years old, my aunt sent me a harmonica, a toy harmonica with plastic reeds for Christmas. And I got that harmonica and I could play things like, like just chords, you know, but with a melody. And oh, Susanna, I figured that out in a few days. But that harmonica gave up after two weeks, it started just falling apart. I just played it to its limit. And then that was it. I was on to some other kid's shiny object. And when Bob Dylan came out and I heard Dylan playing, I thought, man, I could, I could play that. I could do what Dylan was doing. I knew I was going to be able to do that because I already had. And so I got Dylan records and started playing and some of the songs I could play along what he was playing, others I couldn't. And I thought, I bet that's what they're talking about. A key. I bet he's in a different key, you know. What is a key? Around that time, I started a band. I had a harmonica for a couple of months and asked my friend Paul Bachowski, Butch, we called him, would he play in a band? Yeah, sure, but he was a real musician. That guy could play. He played guitar and uh, sang beautifully. But I was gonna be the lead singer in the band. I only had one note. It just kept coming out the same one note all the time. That note was not in any of the three songs just one note, and I couldn't get past it. And Butch said, "Do you know what a key is, man?" I said, um, "Tell me." <laughs> he said, "Well, look, we're in the key of A," and he played. And I don't know if I'm in A right now, but he said, "Do Re Mi Fa Sol La Ti Do," and he played it on the guitar while he was doing it. And I said, "Okay." And he said, "I don't know what key you're in, <laughs> but it isn't this one." He said, "Get this note." So he played the root note, and I got the note. Now, I had a tonality, and I could fit in, and really, within a day or so, I could sing all three of those songs, at least somewhat. Well, then later, when I met Jerry Saccone, and we played well, he played guitar and sang, I played harmonica, and ended up in New Jersey, going up there to play in Jerry Saccone's band, and he started a band called the Saturday Night Bath, And so I did play with the band, but I was like the non-musician in the band. I didn't have any education or literacy. I had no literacy about music as yet. So Jerry would have to tell me things like, Bob, we're in B-flat. I'd go, oh, he'd say, get an E-flat harp. I didn't know how to do the cross-harping that harmonica players use, second position. I knew how to play in second position, but not which harmonica's in every key. So if he told me which one, well, I could pick it up and play it and play along with the blues, whatever he was doing. Okay, but I was an illiterate musician, and that band ran its course. We did record at RCA Studios. Raymond Hall from RCA Records became the band's manager and my mentor, and we spent seven months in RCA studios in new york seven months almost every night certainly three to five nights a week and raymond had designed those studios and with a team of people but he was a chief engineer and he had designed and his team had soldered the big uh, multi-channel mixer that we were using so he was a brilliant engineer and highly respected and i was very grateful to be under his wing and he did he just took me under his wing and started teaching me gave me a new job in the band I had actually gotten fired from that band for a while because I wasn't carrying my weight out on the road. I didn't sing, but the other three guys all sang. So when we ran into financial dire straits, I got jettisoned and the other three guys could fulfill the rest of the dates. Like, you know, promoter didn't pay and that kind of stuff. So I felt very wounded and licked my wounds and went back to New Jersey and the band stayed out for the rest of the tour. And about eight months or so later, They called and said, hey, we got this deal with RCA, and or with Raymond. Not with RCA, but with Raymond, Golden City Productions. And we're recording in RCA studios. Raymond's deal with RCA is, you can use our studios as long as you want, Ray. Give us first right refusal on any product you make. And so let us make you an offer or turn it down for anything you produce down there. Work all night if you want. And so he did. We'd work till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning every night from 7 till 1 or 2 And then we'd go to our day gigs and Raymond would be back the next morning doing sessions with Elvis Presley or Van Cliburn, whoever. And John Denver, he did a lot of those records. Yeah, Raymond was an amazing guy and very good to me. I'm deeply grateful to him. He gave me another job in the band instead of just being a harmonica player. He made me the road manager. I could leave the stage and the show could go on and I could go collect from the promoter and be an active liaison At the gig, I went from a detriment to an asset and thank you Raymond for telling me how to do that and was happy to do it and became very good friends with all the promoters that I could and got to know them on a first name basis and if they were making money, they were easy to find. The show was profitable that night. They'd be down in the middle of it having a great time. One time we opened for Sly Stone with one of these main promoters and Sly was two hours late. So our job was hold enough of the audience And there weren't more than 20% of the audience that were there to see us, you know, at the most. And even they were there also to see Sly. So anyway, Sly did eventually show up. I like that theater. We played multiple times there with that same promoter. And he is one of the guys that I had to go find. Because on nights when he was in danger, financially, I knew I could find him somewhere, probably upstairs in one of the closed boxes, that box seat, watching and hoping. And so I could find him, and he would go ahead and pay us first. And I really appreciate him. I'm grateful. His name was Michael. Bless you, Michael. And so it let me have value in the band again, you see. Yeah. Plus what I did on stage, I'm grateful, was effective as a harmonica player. Because I had a good band leader, he knew how to use me. But later, after I returned, or the band did ultimately fall apart. We had a female singer. She got cold feet right when the album was finishing. And we were starting to show it to RCA and some others and split with a boyfriend and the band was in trouble. So, okay, that's that. Well, we tried to restructure, but it never got wind in the sails again. And it must have been about six or seven months later, I moved back to Texas with my wife and daughter and um, started over again down there. And down there, that's when I eventually went to music school. How old were you there? I must have been around 26 or 27 at that point. And when did you get married? Uh, I was 21. One day we were in a hardware store on Verona Avenue in Newark, near our neighborhood where we lived. And these two old ladies, an old Italian lady, old Jewish lady, they were shopping in the store and they saw me with my little daughter on our papoose thing on my back, you know, and my young wife next to me. And this old lady looks at us and she goes, Oh, look how cute. They get to grow up together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and My ego that. wanted to say, Lady, I'm 21 years old. And then as the years went on, I realized she absolutely knew what was going on. She did. <laughs> All right.
0: How long did that go?
3: Well, we were married five years. And then for the next five years after the divorce, which I measure, and that's how long it took me to really pull my head out of my ass. That next five years after the divorce, we... Gradually became increasingly better collaborators in raising our daughter, even though she lived in another city. I learned a lot of my lessons enough to start saying, Man, my responsibilities matter here, I'm going to do more, etc. And then once I really started contributing more adequately, then I found out that this amazing person I'd been married to was a most marvelous friend again. And then the best thing we ever did, in retrospect for our friendship, was divorce and move into more authentic lives each. And then continue to collaborate in terms of raising our daughter. And she married her real husband some years later. And I love him. He's one of the best things ever happened to our family. And so a great balance ensued. And so we've had these decades of marvelous relationship and friendship Oh, what a blessing. Fortunately, all my former wives, and I have... How many do you have? I have actually four, but I also count some of my wives that I didn't get legally married to. But I've been legally married three times, and after a point we realized that that's just some bureaucrat's paperwork, really, and or a ceremony in a church or whatever. All of that can be fine, but the truth is that the loving is what's most important. And supporting each other's truth is important. So, although it was most difficult with my first wife, was most difficult with me in relation to my first wife, right? right? I gave myself the roughest Mm -hmm. time at first. Each uh, subsequent time was easier and more healthy. So that I got to a place the third time where I realized all we're doing is graduating from a definition of our relationship that's it. There is nothing else actually happening here that I don't have any ex, anything. And and in fact, it was my third wife. Once I called, said Vicky, my first wife, I said something about my ex-wife. And the then current wife, Denise, said, Bob, you don't have any ex-wives. Vicky's your first wife. (laughs) right? (laughs) Because we were in very good relationship. And she was a friend of Vicky's at that point as well. But the ones you marry, you marry for a reason. And that amount of love is valuable and to get back to the place beyond the ego attachments which is where all the pain is coming from to get back to the place to say what's the highest good outcome and for this person I love what is the most beneficial thing for me to do in this definition of relationship right because clearly that other definition became dysfunctional how can I become functional here and now I become functional took me 40 years well literally understood I had to move here yeah
0: I had to move here and then I could wake up and say, oh my God, what was I doing?
3: Right. I know, man.
0: Me? It's not a waste of time because it's all no. learning experience. It's right. all
3: school. Right. Time itself can be one of the big illusions.
0: So do you just have the one daughter?
3: That's all that I know that I've produced. I have a one daughter and 2 stepsons, and And even their mom and I, we were not like legally married, but we were totally partners. And I got to be a part of raising those boys for about four and a half years. Cool and that relationship with them continues. Yeah. We've lost her. She died in 2007. Oh, sorry. And her former husband, my co-dad. You know, that's one of the things that I learned from my daughters, let's say my first wife's real husband. We became co-dads. Me doing what I did at a distance and him doing what he did in right. close proximity. Right. Between the two of us, we were able to provide experience and such for our daughter that any one of us wouldn't have been complete right you know so right. it was like the ideal scene is relate to what is as it is and say how do I grow how do I serve what's the best way to show loving in this context yeah and then deal with your own egos attachments to it being otherwise
0: how old your daughter now
3: I'm gonna say she's probably 49 okay where is she she's in Santa Fe what's yeah. she doing she's an equestrian Ah. she has been many times world champion and amateur equestrian I don't know how many times by the time she was maybe 19 she had already was 17 times I think world champion wow yeah amazing really has talent and she and her husband have had a horse ranch economies are changing I don't know what they'll exactly be doing now but they still have their horses and they still do horse shows Cool. and I have a grandson how old's he he's um wow he's like 21 now (laughs) yeah yeah, and then I have my 2 stepsons here.
0: Oh, they're here in town? They're,
3: they're here in town, and they're in their late 20s. And smart guys, entrepreneurs. So I was thinking that we might uh, wrap up with a little bit of harmonica music. And- Please. Cheers, bro. Great pleasure being with you today.
0: Well, that's show number 47. Great to uh, chat it up with Bob Jackson Minor. He's a good longtime friend, very bright guy, has a lot of really good information to share with us and it was great to spend some time with him and his 44 harmonicas. Come on, forget about it. Tomorrow, I leave with Val and my children, Sam and Zoe, for Santa Cruz to go see the motels, man. We're going to see the motels. It's our first family vacation since we went on a cruise with my parents and my sister and her husband and daughter, my niece, Haley. I don't know how long ago. So Santa Cruz, Friday night, free show, the motels. I'm going to introduce my family and myself to Martha Davis uh, backstage at the motel show on uh, the Santa Cruz boardwalk. Super excited about that. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Thank you so much for listening. It's a pleasure to do the show. I love it, love it, love it. I love doing it. And I will continue doing it until I can no longer do it. It's because of you. Thank you so much. I hope you're getting something out of this. I hope you're at least a little bit entertained, if not informed, a wee bit. Let's see, my sister and the uh, Power of a Shower project, I believe she got her 501C3 certification thing, paperwork stuff done. So off she goes to the races and uh, I will keep you posted as to her progress, okay? Thanks so much for listening as always, and uh, have a great rest of your week. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea, 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook.
1: If whatever you're doing is not working. There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do,
2: I am Citizen 44.
1: Yeah, Mom just asked if Ian was still there.
0: Yeah, we've been spending the day together, and he's out doing whatever, and then we're going to meet at Val's house at 5.30, and then he and I and the kids are going to have dinner together.
1: Oh, very nice. Where?
0: At a place called Sauce on the other side of town by vowels.
2: Wait, what's it called? Sauce,
0: S-A-U-C-E. Hmm, I like that.